Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah, you might know me as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and you probably know me as Twelve Tone, and today is our second birthday as a podcast. Birthday! Yeah! What did you get me? (laughs) I got you a QA. and a Oh, great. Just what I asked for. But yeah, two years ago, we we launched this, basically two years ago, wasn't quite, but, uh, but yeah, two years ago this month. And we figured we'd celebrate by doing a mailbag episode. So we collected a bunch of questions on Twitter over the last month or so. And we're just going to go through as many of them as we can. One that I would like definitely really interested in hearing your opinions on is by Marine DeDrew, who asked, what popular music of the last few decades do you think will pass the test of time and still be listened to in 100 years? And this is continuing the quote. They also asked this part. Or perhaps a better question is, is there any way you can tell or at least make an informed guess? Yeah, so they also in this mentioned the article that kind of went viral a few months ago about Dylan and Simon kind of framing it within that. And this is the thing is I actually think that Dylan and Simon article is kind of correct, except in that I think like Dylan is one of these artists where his influence on the musical landscape, I think it's bigger than a lot of people realize it is. And I think Dylan and the Beatles are kind of the easy answer for this. Maybe Michael Jackson as well. The more complicated answer is that a lot of artists will just because of the nature of where we are at technologically, you know, like I think that there's a degree to which like unless if the Internet kind of collapses entirely, any reasonably popular artist is going to be we're going to be able to find them just because of the nature that of the way that music works now there just is you know so much more documentation of these artists and all these artists have rich recording careers so i think it's a thing where you know kind of from a more realistic like if we're actually looking perspective like i get that people kind of compare where it's like oh, yeah, you know, you go back and you only hear of a few classical composers or, you know, in the early ages of jazz, the only person from there that we really talk about from the early days is Louis Armstrong. This is a fundamentally different time where A, music is so much more diverse. B, music as part of mass media has just is just permeated so much more. See, there's just the technology to keep it. So I think a lot of bands will be remembered. Yeah, what do you think? I would agree with you to an extent, but I think there's an important distinction between sort of being available and being listened to. Like, I think of, just as an example, Bill Haley and the Comets, right? Yeah. Like, that's a name that people who are familiar with rock music and rock history will recognize. I don't know that I would say Bill Haley and the Comets have stood the test of time, right? Like, I don't think there are people who are just putting them on in the same way that they're putting on, say, the Beatles. Or, like, to take one of Bill Haley's, like, contemporaries, like Chuck... Barry, yeah, right? Chuck like Berry, people are yeah. still listening to Chuck yeah, or Barry. Little Richard, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think those sorts of those artists have stood the test of time in the way that, like, you know, Bill Haley is an important historical figure for various reasons. But there are like also going to be plenty of bands from back there that I can't give you examples of because I don't even remember their names. Like they were popular at the time, they maybe had a couple hits and they went away. And like you look at God, who to use a slightly more recent one, I'm trying to remember who did Stacy's mom. Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, Fountains of Wayne. I would not say that they have stood the test of time. I would not say that probably a lot of people who didn't grow up in the era where their one hit song was a hit would even know of them in the first place. 
And so the, the music is all out there. You can, I, I'm sure whatever albums Fountains of Wayne put out, you can still listen to, but are people listening to and are new people listening to is I think a big part of sort of passing the test of time is that like you're gaining new fans. There are, again, to use an easy example, like the Beatles, there are people today who are listening to the Beatles for the first time and be like, oh, I like that. And that's, you know, not to say that the, the Beatles are specifically, you know, uniquely good in that regard or anything. That's a lot of that is culture. A lot of that is exposition, but that gives them this lasting legacy. But I think another sort of part of the question that I wanted to focus on a bit is because they asked like the past few decades. And like, if you talk about someone like the Beatles, or you talk about someone like Bob Dylan, like using this hundred year mark that they gave we are closer to the end of that than the beginning for both of those artists. And so like, I'm thinking like people of the last 10, 20 years. And the big name that stands out in my mind for that is Kendrick Lamar. Yeah. And a hundred years is a really long time. And I I don't necessarily feel all that confident predicting anything about what the world will look like in 21, 22. But like, it would make a lot of sense to me for people to still be listening to Kendrick Lamar decades in the future in ways that a lot of artists who are active right now, I couldn't necessarily see. I agree with that. I would say along with Kendrick on that, there's kind of a category of I would put Beyonce there. Yeah. And I would probably put Kanye there as well. I think a lot of that is kind of like what it's kind of getting at. And I think this is part of what Dylan and the Beatles are getting at for me, as opposed to, you know, like a Paul Simon, where I mean, I love Simon and Garfunkel literally just released a video proclaiming the genius of Paul Simon. But Dylan and the Beatles and Elvis and Michael Jackson and, you know, Kendrick and Beyonce and Kanye, I think there is a degree to which, you know, commercial success plays in, but I think it's more how closely tied they are with the kind of cultural narrative of the moment. And in that sense, in my mind, Kendrick is very much like Dylan in the way that Dylan was kind of the, you know, face of 60s counterculture, anti-Vietnam protests, like that's kind of what All Right is for our generation now, right? Like All Right became the anthem of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that sort of thing is lasting. Like I think songs really become lasting and artists really become lasting when they become entwined with a cultural movement or a historic moment. And yeah, so I think I agree with you on the Kendrick front when it comes to that. There's that aspect. And there's also like a thing that stands out for me just as like uh, someone who has learned more than they wanted to about, you know, Western music history and Western classical music history is like if you look at someone like, you know, Beethoven or Bach, it's not that they weren't tied to especially Beethoven was fairly tied to some important cultural changes in his time. But a lot of that is also sort of. So I made a video a while back now about sort of the classical canon. And one of the claims I made is that part of the reason that Beethoven's music keeps standing the test of time is because eventually time sort of stopped testing it. Mm. Like we had this point in the late 19th century where some people who who had like self-declared music experts that people were listening to were just like, yeah, that's the good music. That one right there, that's, that's the good music is good. That has a significant impact on how we remember artists like Beethoven and Bach is because this have been declared next level musical geniuses. And so you like, if you want to talk about something like that, you can talk about bands like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Where like 
I wouldn't say that Led Zeppelin isn't tied to cultural movements, right? That would be a wildly ahistorical claim. Yeah. I think that a lot of why Led Zeppelin is Led Zeppelin in a lot of people's minds, and same with Pink Floyd, is that there was this huge critical consensus at a specific formative time for a lot of people that said, like, these are the ones. Yeah. Is these bands, they're the best bands. These guys, they do rock and roll better than anyone else does rock and roll. And we're just going to keep saying that. And so that has sort of become crystallized as common knowledge. And I think that's really important as well. It's just this idea that you you formalize this concept. And that that's a thing that's really hard to see coming in advance. Yeah. Like, I think even if you look at someone like Beyonce, she's had decades to establish that position at this point. And it is certainly true that that is a widely held perception of Beyonce and not an unearned one either. That is not something that you could have predicted when Destiny's Child released their first album. Yeah, that's not something you could have predicted when Beyonce co-starred in Austin Powers' Gold Member. Exactly. Her most important musical accomplishment. (laughs) Exactly. I think I agree with basically everything that you have to say there. One band that I wanted to mention that is interesting because they're a band that like they're from the 70s and 80s, but I actually think their relevance is they've they've kind of entered a new wave of relevance, yeah. which is the Talking Heads. I think the Talking Heads are a super interesting example of this where, you know, you see a lot of what's happening in a lot of kind of like art rocky spaces now. And there are a lot of artists doing stuff that sound like the Talking Heads. And there are a lot of people kind of reevaluating and repraising the Talking Heads. And it's not yeah. that they didn't get credit in their time. They were honestly like, oddly successful for a band that weird in their time, but it really feels like their influence continues to grow. An artist like that might be someone like, I wonder to what degree a hundred years down the line, someone will talk about MF Doom or something like that, right? Yeah, Yeah, or something like the the hyper-pop folks. Yes, People like, you know, a hundred gex, a thousand gex. One of those is the album, the other is the band. I don't remember which is which, but gex. Some amount of gex. gex. (laughs) A gex number. The one other thing that I wanted to get on this before we move on is that the idea that a hundred years from now, people will still be listening to music at all from a hundred years in the past is not a given. You know, if we go back historically through music history, this idea that you would sustain an artist's career long after their death is, is relatively new. And by relatively new, I mean a couple hundred years, so not like super new. Even as far back as like Bach's day, the idea that Bach would still be an important person and still be an important musical figure 200 years later would not have occurred to him. Yeah. That was really, more than anything, a change that took place over the course of the 19th century. And you know, a little bit before that, I don't want to oversimplify the history, but I also don't want to talk about the history. So... I'm just going to say it's complicated. We developed this idea, and it's not that this is necessarily going to change back to what people used to do. And I think for a lot of the reasons you mentioned about sort of technology and distribution, it seems unlikely to me that that's going to happen. But I do want to stress that the question sort of presupposes that there are artists active today who will still be listened to in 100 years. And I don't necessarily want to concede that that assumption is automatically true even if it does seem at least reasonably likely. Yeah, I wanted to bring kind of very similar to this, so I think it's good to bring this one up, is at Feedback's Tweety asked, 
How do you think we'll look back at the current musical era retrospectively? Different genres and subcultures have always had their own history, but the amount of independent music has exploded and made the current era incalculably diverse. Uh, so I think that's a very kind of interesting t place to continue Marion's question. Yeah, sort yeah. of roll off of this. Do you have any thoughts to start off? Yeah, so the first thing is that this is not a new thing. It is, but it's not an unprecedented thing, rather. Let's put it like that. This is sort of what happens to classical music in the early 20th century, where, you know, if you go back through classical history, like, obviously there were changes happening and there were different things happening in different countries and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you can sort of break things up. You know, there's the Baroque period, the Gallant period, the Romantic period, blah, blah, blah. Classical period, of course. Somewhere around the early 20th century, especially sort of in that like mid-war period, but even before then, that really starts to break down. And you really start to have like all of these different movements that are happening simultaneously. And it becomes very hard to draw a clear timeline through them in the way that you sort of can like, oh, like, yeah, the gallant was a response to the Baroque. The classical was a response to the gallant. The romantic was a response to the classical. But like, you know, the maybe serialism is a response to the late romantic. But then you have sort of the like the impressionists, the expressionists, blah, blah, blah. And like everything, it sort of spirals out and you really have to start talking about like very specific micro movements and like often like specific artists like you'll just talk about Stravinsky instead of like any particular or you'll talk about like the second Viennese school which you know that's a bunch of people but that's basically just three dudes yeah like that's Schoenberg, Berg and Webern and you know some associated friends but like this whole like serialism is this whole huge thing in so much of like like that we talk about all the time in like music theory music history and it's, it's kind of just three dudes like, it's not. There's more than that, Bly. I know Stravinsky did some serialist stuff. There was, you know, if you want to get into whatever. But, you know, the point is that we've already sort of seen this happen where you see these sort of fragmentations of what we have been able to draw as this sort of linear culture. And I think we saw a little bit of a recreation of that through sort of mainstream distributions of popular music, where like there was a dominant narrative of what the yeah. popular music scene was doing. At this time, we can talk about like what the music of the 60s or the early and the late 60s, maybe if we want to break that up. But like we can talk about that or we can talk about the 70s and we can talk about the 80s. And like each of these has sort of a sound and an idea and a movement. And then somewhere around the early 2000s, I think especially you see the rise of, you know, the Internet and you see the rise of Napster, the rise of like file sharing and the rise of like independent distribution and eventually the you know, more legitimate forms of that as well, like Apple Music and people. It just becomes so much easier. And you see the rise of recording technology too and it becomes so much like you said so much easier to get access to all of these different kinds of music and all of these different genres and all these independent artists who are just doing their thing that is sort of its own little micro genre and it becomes much harder to draw this clear like narrative line through and so again i, I think that if we want to understand how we would look at this period of popular music i think one good way to do that would be to look back at how we view about a century ago in classical music that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I think for me, I have two thoughts on this. The first one is about the era kind of broadly. And so I've thought of this a lot. And essentially, I think that when you look at the last century and a half of music, it's been kind of, like you said, like an increasing levels of fractionalization as these new subgenres kind of spin off and spin off and spin off. But in reality, most of the popular music being listened to right now is all stuff fractionalizing off of the blues, right? 
yeah. functionally. Oh, yeah. And I think what we're seeing now, what I would kind of define this era as is almost it's kind of funny because you say like there is more stuff than ever, but there's a degree to which it's it's almost like things are actually reconstituting as with limits of what can be kind of like completely new and revolutionary, which are usually actually bound to technology as much as they are to any sort of creativity. What's yeah. happening is a kind of recoalescing where all of these genres that share common ancestors like, you know, rap and metal and things like that, that have kind of gone off in a very different way are now recombining and reiterating with like, you know, you have in my mind, like all of the bands that people kind of like a lot of people are most interested in and excited about today are bands that are just kind of combining various iterations of all of these mad kind of assortments of genres that have, you know, persisted throughout the years. And and so there's almost this moment of recombination or even to use a term that's very kind of of the time, like mashup of genre. Right. So yeah. I think it's this point where like what we have seen in our lifetime is and are continuing to see is the absolute disillusion of genre boundaries and that is true on an aesthetic sense but also on a cultural sense where you know like back in the day like when the who were around mods and rockers like mods didn't listen to rocker music and rockers didn't listen to mod music even though they were the exact same music you know <laughs> functionally like they sound very similar just had different fashion styles attached to it but now it's the point where you talk to anybody and ask what kind of music they listen to, and 90% of people will be like, you know, a little bit of everything. Yeah. That is kind of the new era that we it live in. It's much more the... Yeah. One thing that I do want to say is this sort of this, this blending of genres that you're talking about. I'm sure this won't be news to you, but that is not new either. Yes. Like, yeah. if you go back to something like the new wave of British heavy metal, a lot of that was taking what earlier metal bands were doing and blending that with a lot of what punk musicians were doing. Yeah. And sort of smashing those together... And that's how you get bands like Iron Maiden. And so it's not so much that suddenly we have, and I'm not saying this is what you're, you were saying. I just want to be, to clarify this. Like, it's not so much that like suddenly we are seeing genres combining in ways that have never yeah. happened before, but it's more that that process ex is accelerating Yes, to the point where it becomes much harder to sort of define those boundaries. And you see a lot, like you said, a lot more people who are much more willing to like a lot of different things. Like I listen to a lot, like to extreme metal. I listen to a lot of like, like new metal from the early 2000s. I mentioned that before, but I also listen to Taylor Swift and I also listen to Beyonce and I also listen to Clipping and I listen to like Run the Jewels and Jackson Brown. And even when you and I were like coming up in like middle school and high school that was not a thing yeah right like that was like if you were a rocker like a lot of your identity was tied to listening to rock music right yeah i mean i think for me that sort of it was a little bit i think i blame largely like we talked about this in an earlier episode but like my parents who exposed me from a young age to a lot of different or not a lot of different but at least different kinds of rock at least and, and different sorts of uh, styles of music i think the big thing for me was going to music school and getting yeah you really sort of do have to have this. But even there, like, I was really adamant, especially at first, like, I'm a metal singer. Yeah. And I was going to do, like, the hard rock stuff and the metal stuff. 
And eventually I sort of got pulled in. And once I started doing my bachelor's, they were like, okay, you have to learn how to sing jazz. And it was like, I do not want to do that. <laughs> sort of instinctive, like visceral negative reaction to just the concept of yeah, jazz. Yeah. And that's something I've largely gotten over. And I would recommend anyone who feels that way, get over it. That was me with pop music for a long time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And you get the sort of like... A thing that a lot more people are starting to realize is that genres are so internally diverse yep. that it doesn't almost doesn't make sense to have like a strong opinion about a specific genre of music as a whole. Yeah. Like, especially when you're talking about the higher level, like if you want to talk like, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I, I listen to all kinds of music except for hip hop. And it's like, well, there are like a hundred different kinds of hip hop. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually a lot more than that. They all sound very different. Maybe try a different one than the one or two that you've listened to already. You know, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't yeah. want to get too judgy on that. Like you're allowed to not like things you don't like, but I think that a lot more people are sort of coming around to this idea that like in any given genre, there are probably going to be some songs you like and there are going to be some songs you don't. And like, the more you're yeah. open to that, the more interesting a musical experience you can have. And like even to the point that the other one, along with hip hop, that a lot of people for a long time, it was everything except rap and country and even country. Now, yeah. there's a lot more country stuff that's in vogue among kind of like people yeah. who are. Yeah. And I think a big reason behind this is, like I said, it's reflective of the technology where when you need to go to a store and buy a record and, you know, there's a time and financial yeah. investment, you're way more likely to spend that time and that money on something that you know you're going to like. Whereas in the modern age, like it's very easy to just check something out on Spotify. Yeah. And, you know, if you do that, often you'll discover new different things that you like. Yeah, there's that. And also like in stores, going back to like record store days and everything, the boundaries between genres were physical. Yes. Right. There was a rock section and a metal section and there was a hip hop section. And you went to the one that you wanted to go to and looked around and it sort of had to sort of stray off. Whereas, you know, it's not like, you know, recommendation algorithms these days won't lump things together along that. But like because there's so much fluidity in the connection between different artists, like once you stop having this like large overarching umbrella label that sits on top of them, you can much more easily drift from, you know, oh, Imagine Dragons sounds, you know, sort of like some hip hop artists and it can sort of pull you in that. Or maybe it pulls you to like 21 Pilots, which then pulls you into, you know, Kendrick Lamar or something. And not that 21 Pilots sounds exactly yeah. like Kendrick Lamar, to be clear, but you know, the, the connections are easier to draw. Yeah. And th you can there are more paths that connect you to different sections instead of just being in a physical space that has all of the metal albums and nothing else. Yeah. I'll be quick on this second half because already these questions are shocking that prompts can get us yeah. talking. But the other thing kind of along with this sort of broadening and disillusion of the cultural boundaries around genre. I think the other thing that is happening right now that people will look back on that is very interesting is just the rise of internet music and especially internet yeah. music as folk music. That's something that yeah. I'm really interested in, like because there is internet music where, you know, there's kind of like auteur bands who create and distribute and are very online or stuff like that. And then there's internet music where it's just weird mashups of meme songs, you know, or those things yeah. on TikTok where like someone will take like a funny sound effect and people will build on top and build songs around it. 
or, you know, like kind of like Bill Wurtzy style stuff. Like, I think there's yeah. there's a whole lot of Internet folk music is really kind of starting to exist and coalesce as a genre. And that's something that I think when we look forward, you know, in a generation, I think that musicologists will have a lot to say about Internet folk music. And that's something that's very interesting and exciting that is happening right now. Yeah, I mean, we are over like 20 minutes in at least and we've done two questions so maybe we should move on yeah we can bang out some quick ones yeah and i have a very important question from friend of the show adam neely oh yes yeah who asks uh why have both major and minor seems inefficient do you have any thoughts yeah it's a scam by big music to make you pay for twice as many key centers yeah yeah, they don't even have different key signatures they just reuse them it's (laughs) incredibly blatant yes you're getting scammed guys I have a question that the answer is, in my mind, at least very easy. We'll see. Lefty Guitarist asks, what are your thoughts about electric guitar in the orchestra? I have no issue with it in concept. I think that all in favor of expanding the orchestra, all in favor of bringing in interesting sounds, if that's what you need. The image that always comes to mind when I think about electric guitars in the orchestra is Yngwie Malmsteen. Mm. I believe it was the Tokyo Philharmonic that I played, and they basically just... You know, they they play some symphonic stuff and he responds to what they're doing with some like super fast guitar licks. Yeah, that specific one just really didn't feel integrated to me. And so it sort of comes down to me projecting that onto a lot of other possibly very interesting approaches. I have not seen something that felt like it utilized both the capacities of an orchestra and the capacities of an electric guitar effectively. That does not mean that such compositions don't exist. It doesn't certainly doesn't mean they couldn't exist, but it's that's sort of my instinctive bias here. The main theme to Wonder Woman does it pretty well. I don't remember the main theme to Wonder Woman, but I believe you. (laughs) It's got a shrieking electric guitar thing. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's great. Again, I think you can and should be able to use any instrument in in an orchestra as long as you're using it well, like kind of like you said. Yeah, Yeah. sort of one one thing that I do sort of want to differentiate is the difference between like an orchestra and some orchestral instruments, right? Like if you think about electric guitar in like an evanescent song, like, yeah, Yeah. that works. That works perfectly well. Sort of symphonic metal as a whole does really interesting stuff with it. But like, I think that is different from just an orchestra featuring an electric guitar, which again is not to say that it can't happen, is not to say that there aren't good versions. It's very possible that Noah is right about the Wonder Woman theme. I don't remember it off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up after this recording. That is, I think, an important distinction to make is sort of if we're talking about the orchestra, then I think that comes with a lot of cultural baggage Yeah, that, you know, orchestral instruments doesn't necessarily. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I think it's a cool idea. I would love to hear something that did it effectively. I don't know that I have yet. Yeah. Although I have seen Wonder Woman, so I might have. <laughs> I just don't remember. All right. You got one lined up. Stratoshred asks, favorite key change slash modulation in a piece of music? I have a Ooh. definite answer, but I want to hear yours first. I think, do you realize by the flaming lips, it's a very basic key change going up to the last chorus. It just works so well. That's what came to me with that prompted. I'll think there might be some other ones. What's yours? Living on a prayer. I think that whenever these sorts of questions come up, and and not to say that this is what this particular person was asking, but like when these sorts of discussions happen, 
I think, especially in music theory circles, there's this bias towards like really structurally interesting yeah. key changes. Like I think to like, you know, Adam Neely's video about it was uh, Celine Dion's I Will Always Love You. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there's a, like a lot of really interesting stuff. But we'll, we'll talk about like, you know, pivot modulations. We'll talk about like, ooh, look at how well this is hidden. Look at this interesting relationship. I had a friend who was like trained in classical music more than I was. And when he was taught, he didn't even learn about direct modulations. They taught him just modulations as pivot chord stuff and that it wasn't a modulation unless there was a pivot. And so it had to be this sort of smooth transition where you're like, ooh, they did went to some really interesting key. And and that stuff's cool. I love that stuff. Like I, I've talked about it before, but you know, you listen to Living on a Prayer and you listen to the, they, they get to the final chorus and they, they change the lyrics they drop a beat and they, they shift up. I think it's a minor third. It's just like, it's so huge and it's so unsubtle in every yeah. possible way. And it's just, it's so beautiful in what it's trying to do. And I think that that sort of thing doesn't get enough credit because it doesn't look clever. Yeah. But it rocks. And I think that that sort of, for me, when I think favorite key change, it's always going to be stuff like that. Like, yeah, I, and it's always going to be specifically that one. It's just such a good key change. I think for me, that is something with Do You Realize is it's interesting because it goes yeah. up and then immediately kind of goes back down to the regular yeah. key. It almost like fakes out the big final chorus key change. The other one also is and again, yeah, these are not incredibly creative answers, but sometimes the, you know, the boring answers are boring because yeah. they're the right ones. I'm going to push back on boring. Yeah. OK, yeah. Love on top. No, love on top is another great example. Yeah. Love on top has no interest in being subtle about its key changes. Yeah. I mean, I like love on top conceptually because it's like it's at a time when those big kind of key changes are happening all the yeah. time in pop. And it's like this concept of, OK, how many of those can we do? You know, yeah. <laughs> and I love that energy. And it's just such a great yeah. showcase for specifically Beyonce's voice. Yeah, exactly. Because it just keeps getting higher and higher. And it's like, yeah. there's no way you can do another whole step. And she's just like, watch me. There's a lot of cool stuff that you can do with subtle modulations, too. Again, like Adam's video on like, I will always love you. Fantastic. And so I completely agree with the arguments he's making there. I think that especially when it comes to key changes, but in general, in a lot of these sorts of discussions, it's very easy to overemphasize subtlety and cleverness yeah. in ways that don't give proper credit to just going hard and shredding and owning and also ruling, you know? On that, it's not a key change, but a um, like time change. One of my favorites that has... Yeah, the kind of like going hard ethos is in yeah. Fool in the Rain when it breaks from the double time, like kind of Latin breakdown yeah. back into the chorus. That's one of my favorite moments of any song ever. And it's very telegraphed. It's very clear that it's going to yeah. happen and it happens and it rules. Yeah, they have a similar thing. And again, we're moving away from key changes, but Aqualung yes. does that really well. Yeah, it switches from normal to double time. And then you have this whole solo and then it's just like going really fast and it's building up and it's like, and suddenly it's just like, bah, do, 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 yeah. and the original tempo. And it's just like, it's so good. It's so good. There's a lot to be said for subtlety, but like off the top of my head, favorite key change I've ever heard is also the least subtle key change I have ever heard. Yeah. Tommy at G Tommy asked, considering y'all get into these philosophical musical questions on the show, was there ever a certain album or song that made you delve deeper into analyzing music like you do today? Right. So for me, and I think I've sort of alluded to this on the podcast before, but if I were to attribute 
my sort of the way that I think about music and the way that I think about all of this stuff to any one work of art, it actually wouldn't be a piece of music. Uh, it would be Discworld. Yeah. Like so much of the way that I think of narrative and the way that I think of musical narrative and all of that comes from having read Terry Pratchett as a teenager and just really absorbing a lot of his philosophy about stories. And so like, there, there are certainly albums that have sort of inspired me to think a little bit deeper. Aqualung is certainly one of them. But really, first and foremost, the thing that I would cite as the number one conceptual influence on the way 12 Tone is as a person and as a theorist is Discworld. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) For me, on two fronts, there's the kind of what inspired me to kind of appreciate and understand music as a kind of like cultural political document, which is my favorite thing to do, is probably a lot of when I was really into punk rock because it's kind of hard to separate punk rock from the politics of music, which is great. That's a feature. Punk is definitely a big one. And then I think the big one for me, this might come as a shock, but Bob Dylan was pretty influential on. So I'm not familiar. Yeah. uh, Robert Zimmerman. (laughs) Have you ever heard that? (laughs) But yeah, no, Bob Dylan very much. I definitely remember kind of like listening to Highway 61. And there's something about how, you know, deliberately kind of oblique his songs are that really invites you to, you know, read in and read more. And Dylan was an artist who I really, really got into learning all the kind of myth and lore and stuff behind and Nirvana as well. Actually, I'd say those were the two big ones. Even setting aside that I already knew you loved Bob Dylan, which I have heard before. I think that does make a lot of sense in terms of just like the way you read music. Yes. And the way he presents music to be read. Yeah. I think that there's a very clear alignment there yeah i got one that might be a little bit on the longer side again if we want to go back into one of those olingito asks taking inspiration from an adam neely video if music theory is inherently eurocentric and if Mm, people wanted to change that what are y'all's opinions on how to go about that yeah i think that that's a really tough one because there is a degree to which a lot of that work necessarily needs to happen at the academic level because music theory is an academic pursuit. But I also think that, I mean, I think it's just about kind of the stuff that we talk about a lot and try to focus on a lot of this is reframing your own personal view and remembering kind of that music theory is a, you know, descriptive thing, remembering that music theory is a reference to culture and stuff like that. But I honestly, it's a question that I don't really have a satisfying answer to, because I think that the real answer is broad structural change. And I would like to highlight, it's probably important that Noah and I don't have satisfying answers to this. Let me put this a different way. I think if we want to talk about the high level academic changes, a lot of what that needs to look like if we are going to actually decenter European ideals is also decentering European trained voices and engaging in more conversation with people who are actually parts of other important cultures and engaging with primary knowledge bearers and people who grew up with these sorts of music, people who played this sort of music. I say this sort of music. Another important point here is that there is no singular end result that is good, right? Like what we want 
is it one of the things that gets talked about a lot in these sorts of more progressive music theory circles is that it's not so much music theory as it is music theories, like the sorts of things that we are doing when we talk about sort of a Beethoven symphony are not the same sorts of things that we would do if we wanted to talk about like a gamelan performance. Yeah. And so trying to take one and apply it to the other doesn't really work. On the side of people who are currently in high-level academic music theory positions, part of the responsibility they have, I, I believe, is finding space in curriculums that they can sort of hollow things out that just aren't that big a deal anymore. Figured bass is is often the go-to punching bag here. Like there are values to figured bass, but figured bass can be an elective. People can choose to learn figured bass. It doesn't have to be 90% of the undergrad theory curriculum. Finding those spaces, taking those things out and leaving room for other voices and other experts to come in and fill in those spaces with their own expertise that they have learned by becoming experts in other kinds of music is a really important part of decentering the European perspective and decentering European ideas about what music is. Because you can't just do that by having European trained musicians take their best guesses. Yeah. That's still centering their ideas. It's just now it's their ideas about what everyone else is doing. And so actually handing off some of that space, actually giving room to primary knowledge bearers from other cultures to talk about their cultures and their approaches to music and music theory and music analysis is a huge part of how we can actually train the next generation of music theorists to be less Eurocentric than our generation was, which to be fair, is less Eurocentric than the previous generation was. Yeah. So I think we are moving in a direction. You know, we're not there yet. And I'm not going to pretend we're there yet. I also just think for me, like one of the big things that needs to change is just culturally, people who are in music and music theory spaces need to stop treating music theory as science. Because I think that yeah. that's something that very much reinforces kind of the existing hierarchy. If you believe music theory is kind of an completely objective science, then that suggests that there is a truth to what we do as music theory now. I think it's something that's already changing a lot and there's a lot of attitudes around that that are changing, but it's definitely something that I know for a long time. Yeah, historically. I will say that I think these days that is probably a minority opinion in actual music theory spaces. Yeah. Not a non-present opinion, to be but, clear. There are plenty of people yeah. who will make that argument. But I think that that is not the predominant opinion of music theory among music theorists. But it is often how music theory gets presented to yeah. other musicians and especially in music schools. Like this is one of the things that a lot of music theorists find very annoying is that especially at the undergrad level, music theory is rarely taught by like expert music theorists. It's taught by instrumentalists, yeah. instrumental performance instructors who can handle the class. And they're just sort of like, okay, you bassoonist, you can go teach music. There's a whole thing about music theory and bassoon. I don't know what that is. <laughs> they just keep being these openings for bassoon slash music theory teachers for some <laughs> reason. It's a whole thing in music theory Twitter. But anyway, the point is like you often see like music theory being something that someone who is not primarily a music theorist will pick up to teach as a class, especially at the undergrad level. And so a lot of what we are doing at these high level music theory conversations, a lot of that doesn't trickle down because we're not part of that. We're not there in the AP music theory classrooms. We're not there in the undergrad music theory classrooms. You really don't get to talk to us most of the time until you get to grad school. And I think kind of 
along with that, the other people that are kind of propagating this a lot is like journalists doing yeah. music reporting like polyphonic for instance no <laughs> well in the beginning like when i started doing it it seemed like kind of like theory explainer videos were kind of the it almost felt like the price of entrance to be able to talk about a piece of music on youtube but i think that that itself yeah. has already changed drastically which is great yeah to give credit where it's due i don't think you're a small part of that change well thank you like I think they're certainly not the only one. I don't want to give you like too much credit here, but I think that the success of Polyphonic, especially specifically on YouTube, right? Yeah. Like, I think that the success of Polyphonic made a lot more space for people to do that sort of analysis that doesn't yeah. necessarily start with like, okay, but is this a secondary dominant? Yeah. Which is really the only question music theorists ask. <laughs> we just, we look at pieces of music, ask if things are secondary dominance and then move on as like 90% of our job. Yeah, so I think that that's a good place yeah. to leave that. The answer is it is a long and arduous process that requires a whole lot of thought by ourselves, but also a lot of people that are a lot smarter than ourselves. Yes, especially people who are smarter than us. Yes. Kind of similar on this note, Olinguito, Jammer Dad, asked, do you agree that people don't take music seriously, more like a commodity and less of a science? And yet, I feel as if people are so critical of music when you do take it somewhat seriously or in a more scientific light. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts are that people shouldn't be taking music like a science. If I'm going to read this, uh, this question the way I believe it was intended, I, I yeah. think that this is maybe... Science isn't quite the right word yeah. uh, for what they're referring to. I, I believe this is more sort of about taking it as like a serious academic study. Yeah. Then, which it is a thing that often gets conflated with science, which is a whole other topic. But I, I think that that's more the question being asked here. Honestly, like, I think that I don't really agree with the premise of that. Like, I, I think that there definitely are people that don't take music seriously, but there are people that take music too seriously. There are people that don't take music seriously enough. Like, I think it really is all yeah. over the map. I do think that sort of in terms of academic structure, we don't take the humanities and the arts That's as a whole true. seriously yeah. enough. And so from that lens, I do agree that there's a sort of idea that it's just music, you know, we, that's, yeah. we can cut that from the budget. We need to make room for like the real education, yeah. like the sciences. I talked about this in a lot of videos. I don't know that I need to get too much deeper into that, but I, I do think that to that extent, there is this idea. And I, I think that because, especially because music is, and we've talked about this as well before, but because there is this sense that music is just sort of like made by a group of people just sort of sitting around and an idea strikes them and they write a beautiful song. Like that is sort of yeah. the narrative of a lot of it. And we can sort of there's few enough people involved that we can pretend that that's what happens. I do believe that there is this tendency in a non-trivial portion of the population to push back against the idea of thinking about music deeply. Mm -hmm. That In that sense, I, I think that people are maybe not taking music seriously enough and maybe not giving artists enough credit when I'm like, they did this and this. And they're like, no, they just played what sounded good. And yeah. it's like, do, do you... Do you think they're just rolling dice until they find a chord they like? No, they understand how to put chords together in ways that work. Yes. I do think that at that level, there is an underestimation of the importance and the significance and the depth of music. Yeah. But I, I do also think that a lot of people do think pretty deeply about music as well and do enjoy music at a pretty deep level. And so, yeah, there, there are people who take it too seriously. There are people who don't take it seriously enough. And then there are people like me, coincidentally, who take it the exact right amount of serious all of the time. I am just very good at that. So, you know. 
Yeah, yeah. Everyone be impressed at how seriously I take music at the specific right amount. It's like a Goldilocks thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a, a question from my brother about was Sid Barrett Pink Floyd really <laughs> Pink Floyd or like pre-Floyd? It was 100% Pink Floyd. I mean, I do think there's bands that do a little more kind of ship of Theseus stuff that I'm more interested in with someone like yeah. like Sabbath or someone like that, where, you know, there's interesting questions about that. Yeah. But for something like early Pink Floyd, like I don't think that the difference between, you know, Gilmore, Rogers or Barrett era Floyd is there's no wider gap than like, you know, like Sergeant Pepper Beatles versus Please Please Me Beatles, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Or even like if you look at just like classic era Pink Floyd albums like The Wall, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Wish You Were Here. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe all three of those had the exact same lineup. Yeah. They don't sound like the same band that much either. Yeah. Like Pink Floyd was constantly changing their sound. And so sort of differentiating across the point where suddenly there wasn't was a slightly different lineup, which, you know, Sid Barrett was an important part. Yes. Of Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd. Yeah. But it's just. Bands change lineups. There's a lot of variety as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it depends a lot on you want to talk about like Phil Collins era Genesis versus Peter Gabriel era Genesis. Like there are non-trivial distinctions to be made there. Yeah. But if you look at like early Metallica like with, with Cliff, I'm blanking on his last name versus like, you know, Robert Trujillo Metallica, like there, there's differences there as well. But like it still feels like Metallica because you still have like James Hetfield leading the way. You still yeah. have Cliff Burton, by the way, uh, Kirk ha- Cliff Burton. Thank you. But you still have like Kirk Hammett, Lars Ulrich. You have a lot of continuity there in terms of artistic voices. And so I'd, I'd say that just losing Sid Barrett doesn't fundamentally change Pink Floyd. Whereas you look at like, like you said, Black Sabbath, the only person who has been a member of every iteration of Black Sabbath is Tony Iommi. Yeah. And so you can wind up with some very different bands that happen to be playing under the same name because this one dude is still there. And at that point, you know, is it really the same band, I think is a more interesting question. What is a band could even be a whole topic on its own, because then you play into like, like Steely Dan or something like that. Right. Where like Steely Dan. Yeah. It's always session musicians and touring musicians around Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, except now Walter Becker has passed and it's just Donald Fagan. Yeah. And there's a question of, is that really Steely Dan? It's like, well, more of the musicians are exactly what they would have been. So if something <laughs> decides, you know, New Order yeah. is not Joy Division because New Order decided to change their name after Ian Curtis died. But if they hadn't changed yeah. their name and had continued to do the exact same stuff and been called Joy Division, I'd call them Joy Division. I think bands are self-identifying yeah. and I trust their judgment of what is and isn't yeah. a band. I do have a couple potentially interesting examples that might be worth discussing here. The first of them is sort of Panic at the Disco. Okay. Which was was a whole was a whole band back in the 2000s yeah. and then went dormant for a long time and then Brendan Yuri owns the name and so he basically just brought it back for a completely unrelated Brendan Yuri project. And so it's still called but like if you listen to like High Hopes versus like I Write Sins Not Tragedies. Yeah. They don't feel like the same band and because there was this long like gap between panic doing anything like it sort of feels to me more like it is a new band that just happens to have the same name and is is basically just a brendan yuri project that he owns the name for and is just capitalizing on which you know is not a criticism he can do what he wants but like it it does feel like a lot of what he's doing or what panic is doing these days are disjointed and disconnected from what panic was when i was a teenager yeah that makes sense yeah yeah and the other one to sort of tie in with the name thing you were saying is sublime 
Yes. Specifically Sublime with Rome. Or Queen with Adam Lambert, too. Similar deal. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have these things where it's just like, we are kind of the same band, but a very important person is no longer with us. So we're just going to put that out front. Yeah. And so it becomes a technically different band name because their band name is not Sublime and Rome is there. They are Sublime with Rome is the band. And so when they do new stuff they're doing new stuff as a new band that is sort of not riding the coattails because it's their own coattails for the most part, but sort of riding the legacy of their previous band in a way that sort of New Order didn't when they changed uh, from Joy Division. Or Audio Slave are a different band, even though they are Rage Against the Machine with Chris Cornell. Yeah, although I would argue that the difference between Chris Cornell and Zach De La Rocha is huge. Well, and and they are also just making very different, like it's clearly a different project, yeah. Uh, Oh, uh, yeah, unambiguously. Yeah. All right, what else do we have here? Which bands, songs, or albums do you think get more hate than they deserve? All of them. <laughs> yeah. I actually kind of just made a video about this, the the butt rock video. Yeah. And this sort of ties into a lot of that, which I think is the thing you and I have sort of talked about doing a whole episode at some point, these sort of pseudo genres. Yeah. But like things like butt rock, dad rock, yacht rock to an extent is sort of, I think of them as like almost insult genres that are yeah. labels that are applied from the outside as a way of rejecting or dismissing the music. Yeah. And you see this to an extent with like, not necessarily with genre names, but you see a lot of this in the way we talk about pop music as well. And when we look at a lot of sort of the cultural punching bags of music, very rarely does it feel like the actual cause is about the music itself. Yeah. Right? Like you you look at someone like Justin Bieber or Harry Styles or going back to sort of my era, bands like NSYNC, a lot of that hate came from the fact that these were bands marketed towards teenage girls. Yeah. Everyone loves hating teenage girls, which if you're listening to this and you're a teenage girl, I don't hate you. Yeah. I don't think Noah does either, although he can confirm or no, deny. I don't hate you. And I'm sure that the, the music you are listening to is probably the most interesting, exciting thing happening right now. And I'm sure I'll come to it in 10 it's years. It's probably pretty rad. Yeah. yeah. No, please let me know about it. But no, like this sort of culturally music punching bags wind up being a stand in for cultural punching bags, like a lot of like genres that get dismissed. We talked about country and same with a lot of butt rock. A lot of that is classism. Yeah. I always get a little uncomfortable just dropping classism there because one of the things that these arguments tend to make is that this music targets the white working class and then they just sort of call that just classism ignore the racial aspects of it. And so like, I don't necessarily feel like I am well equipped to unpack the issues with that, but I do want to acknowledge it. Yeah. That like, but when, when we talk about, you know, butt rock or we talk about country or whatever, there's this sneering or like looking down your nose at people idea. Yeah. Or like a lot of it, which I talked about in my butt rock video is this idea that like, if you look at a lot of classic rock culture, we look at bands like the way people talk about bands like Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, et cetera. There's this obsession with a high art and being high art and attaining that status in the way that, you know, Beethoven and Bach did to tie back to our previous discussions, because we definitely planned this out so there would be narrative continuity between <laughs> our answers. We are very good at our jobs. Tying back into that, there's these sort of this idea of like a, a musical genius or a musical scion or like people who yeah. are just really, really good objectively and they transcend just making music that people enjoy and instead make something that is just true art with a capital A. And a lot of, I mean, butt rock as a genre explicitly is not interested in that. A lot of country music is not interested in that. Yeah. And 
some, not all, but some subgenres of hip hop are not interested in that. And so they become very easy to dismiss because they're not trying to play that specific game, but it means you're not evaluating them based on the rules of the game they are playing. I think this is the thing. Yeah. A lot of hate of music comes from people trying to apply one cultural standard to something that is of a completely different culture and trying for something else yeah. completely different. Yeah, no, completely agree. Yeah. Any band or artist that gets the sort of pile on hate is overhated. Like any of those. Yeah, no, and any band that you could use as a punchline yeah. Nickelback, is probably like, yeah. getting more hate than they deserve. Yeah. There are some cases where just because where the artist is just genuinely like a bad person. Yes. Those I'm much less willing to defend, but that's that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. But yeah, people who are just like, oh, is this bad music that you shouldn't like that music? They're they're probably wrong. That music's probably fine. Yeah. It has the 12 tone stamp of approval. Another question from Micro is what's your favorite video you've made slash the video you're most proud of? There's a couple good ones. I'm really proud of my like 27 club one about... Ooh, that one was great. Yeah. Made me feel old because that was when I realized I was like four years old. <laughs> but uh, still. <laughs> I'm always happy with ones where I feel like I am not just kind of telling a story. Like I like telling stories, but yeah. ones where I feel like I am adding something to the cultural conversation that has not been said or is not said enough. And I think yeah. that's one where I did that. I think my Scott Joplin one, I talk about that one a lot. My yeah. Run the Jewels one where I got run the jewels you know i got Ooh, lp's yeah. <laughs> stamp of approval the other ones are all of my audiovisual companions i'm very very proud oh, yeah. of those ones i think that it's just an interesting fun thing that i did kind of like you know that innovated yeah. in form in the video essay and i'm proud of that just a new experiment yeah 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 i would break mine up into a couple different things because for the most part, the ones that I'm most proud of similarly are the ones where I feel like I'm saying something. Yeah. And every couple months or so, I'll just get worked up enough about something to put together a whole video about a uh, topic. And the one that I generally, I think my favorite is going to be my most recent, whichever one that was. And right now that's the sheet music one. That one I, I've been planning for like three, four months and I like... I got friends of mine to record different pieces of music for it to demonstrate like what information was missing from staff notation. And I did like this, this pretty thorough dive through a lot of this stuff. And I, I think I made my argument really well and really clearly. And that's one of the things like going back to like, I went back recently to watch my old video about the canon, uh, Beethoven sucks at music, that one. Uh, and I found that like, I was still really proud of having made it. But like, I wasn't super happy with a lot of the way that I presented my arguments in parts. And there's like a lot of things that if I was doing it now, I would do it differently. And so I think it holds up. I'm largely still proud of it, but I, I don't really feel like I can call it my favorite anymore. Yeah. Just sort of because enough time has passed that I've gotten better at what I do and I have a better understanding of how to do it. And I can view it from enough distance to see all of the flaws. So yeah. I would say the sheet music one or possibly the art music one. That one, I did that last year. I'm hugely proud of that one as that well. That one's really So th those two would be sort of of those like statement pieces, that one. The other sort of thing I would say is sort of, of my analysis videos, which I sort of view as separate. My favorite, I think is probably another fairly recent one, but the landslide video. I'm extremely proud of that one. I decided to try a different approach to it than I would normally do. And it wound up working really well. And it let me... So at the end, look into sort of the some of the 
cultural impact of the song and look at some of the covers that people have done of it and how they've changed the way it's interpreted and sort of relate that back to what Stevie Nicks was doing. And I think that it was a really a really effective piece of analysis is and like I it feels weird to say about my own work because you know I'm deeply ingrained in me not to say nice things about myself but like that one and also sort of the Bohemian Rhapsody one but that's just because that was just such a mammoth undertaking I am also very proud of my Bohemian Rhapsody one because yeah. it was also a mammoth oh, yeah, undertaking exactly <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that that one I I had to do two videos on. And also like uh, in terms of just like artists uh, appreciating, I I did get an email from the guitarist from No Doubt, whose name I am blanking on and I feel bad about it, but from my Just a Girl video. And he was he was really happy with it. And he also sent some of his own thoughts on the song as well. So that was really cool, too. Yeah. All right. Do you think that music can be used as a weapon? I think music can and is used as a weapon in various ways. It is very literally used as a weapon when music is used as a torture device, like music being played on repeat, which is incredibly, incredibly bleak. Mm -hmm. That is a case of it being used as a weapon. But I mean, Woody Guthrie carried around a guitar that said this machine kills fascists on it. And, you know, union songs, music is often used. One of the ways that you could say music is used as a weapon is music is incredibly, incredibly good at helping people organize together and helping keep spirits high when people are organizing together and things like that. And so there's there's a weaponistic element to that. Yeah, it's, it's a really effective way of sort of disseminating subversive ideas in ways that aren't necessarily immediately obvious too. yes. Like I think back to, you know, going far back to like slave spirituals that contained hidden messages about how to run away. That whole thing is interesting because the the historicity around that story is a little muddied. We don't actually know if that, yeah, there's a myth around that. I was looking into it a while and it's it's hard to figure out if they actually were, but the story is that underground railroad point directions were embedded in spiritual songs, which is very cool if true. And to be fair, it would be very hard to find evidence of yes. that if it were true. Yeah. In part because it was very, if it was, it was very covert. And in part because, you know, a lot of it was oral traditions yeah. that don't last. And so, like, I'm not saying that it is true. You are correct that, like, if we want to talk about the historical record. Yeah. This gets into the question of, like, oral histories versus sort of written histories. Yeah. And that's a whole, yeah, yeah. like piece of baggage that we are not necessarily going to want to unpack here, but it, it, it is a fair point. It is a good point. Even outside of that, like going to some more stuff that have more concrete records on, like you said, union songs, there are a lot of ways to sort of put ideas out there, you know, like, like dog whistles that aren't, you know, you know, dog whistles as a term gets a lot of yeah largely justified negative connotations, but you know, there are also, you know, times where you can't necessarily say exactly what you want to say for good reasons. Yeah. Oh, no, the things you want to say are for good reasons, not the reason you can't say it. And so, like, that is still a useful way to sort of distribute information in ways that people who know to look for them will see. Yeah. But people who don't know to look for them won't notice. And music can be a really powerful way to do that because a lot of music is already fairly abstract. And so you can get, like... You can sneak in information that may not seem super that might like stand out if it was just in a letter. But if it's in a song, you know, it's just like, oh, that's a weird way of putting that. Yeah. And it's, it's also just it gets really catchy and it's easy to sort of get stuck in your head. You get a, a melody stuck in your head and you get some lyrics and you can remember those lyrics. And so the answer to the question depends on how literally you're defining the word weapon. Yeah. Although unless you want to go to like 
the torture device approach. Beyond that, if we want to talk about like non-horrifying ways that music can be used as a weapon, it, it is sort of more metaphorical. But yeah, yeah, it can be a very effective tool of resistance by being a very effective tool of communication. And I think that also kind of answers Happy Ron's question of how often has music actually made a political difference as opposed to simply changing culture? Yeah. And I would reiterate kind of also on the weapon thing. I had a whole video about the Estonian singing revolution recently, which is something that very much you could very easily say that's using music as a weapon. And I would say yeah. that is a distinct example of it making uh, actual yeah. political change. Yeah. And you know, I would also push back on the idea that changing culture is not a political difference. Yeah. Like it's not the only political difference. Yeah. But like uh, politics exist in part in response to the culture that surrounds them. Yeah. So it's much harder to do bad things as a government if a lot of people think they're bad things. Yeah. Not impossible. We've seen that very clearly <laughs> in the United States. Yeah. And this is maybe more on my side of things than yours, but yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts as well. Chas Music asks, when I choose chords for my music, how can I be sure others hear them the same way? Oh, I mean, it's it's like the color question, right? Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, the short answer is you can't. Yeah. But, you know, it the answer to me is that you can't be 100 percent sure. But all of the predominant evidence seems to suggest that people will. It depends on the levels because all of the evidence seems to yeah. suggest that people will hear the same sound. But whether people will yeah. have the same cultural association with that sound, you really can't know. That I think is more where it's meant. Like, assume that people yeah. have the same basic sonic experiences, yeah. assuming that they have able-bodied, typical hearing capacities. But if you want to talk about, like, cultural associations, what people are going to react to, one thing you can do is, you know, learn music theory. Because we, we do talk about that stuff a lot and we do think about that a lot. And we, you know, it, it's not perfect, but it gives you a sense of what the general conception of what how these chords behave in most people's minds. Hopefully that's what we're trying to do. We're not always doing it right, but, you know, we try. The other thing you can do, which is a lot, probably a lot simpler. And this is I'm going to assume that like chords is a stand in for just musical ideas mm -hmm. in general here. This is not specific to chords, but one thing you can do is play it for other people like I had um, this uh, songwriting class that I did back in college where I had, and this was, it was a vocalist specific songwriting class, so it was primarily focused on lyrics, but I wrote a piece that I thought was very clear about what it was trying to say. I just sang it for the class and everyone's response seemed to imply that they were hearing a very different story than the one I was trying to tell. I had made some assumptions about information that was coming across that wasn't. If you play it for people, like ask their opinions, try to avoid leading questions, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, if you don't want to get there and be like, oh, did, did this chord sound sad to you? Like that's that's going to prompt them to say yes. Or, you know, at, at the very least, you can be like, how did you feel about this moment where I did this? Just give them at least a little bit of space to add their own interpretations. But trying to get feedback from other people, people who you trust, people, especially people who are not musicians, because I think that you can learn a lot more about how your music is coming across sometimes from people who don't have the words to describe it technically, mm -hmm. because you're not really trying to make a technical piece, right? You might be, I don't know you, but if you're trying to sort of tell a story, then it's not necessarily useful for me to sit there and be like, oh, I really like that secondary dominant. I don't know why I'm using secondary dominant so much today, but I am. But like, it's not necessarily the most useful piece of feedback you can get. Whereas someone was just like, oh, that chord was weird. 
that quote sort of took me out of yeah. the piece in a way that was really interesting. That's maybe something that you can do a lot more with because is that the vibe you're going for? And so that's not to say don't play it from musicians too. get feedback from musicians, get feedback from anyone you can. Feedback is great. You know, getting feedback from people who don't understand the craft side of things is often useful because that's a lot of your audience. It's people who do not consciously have the words to describe a lot of that craft and the people who aren't going to be listening to it specifically at that level. And so, like Noah said, at the end of the day, you can never be sure how anyone else is hearing anything, both at a basic physical level and more interestingly at a, a cultural interpretive level. Yeah, you can ask them. What I would also add to that is what I think is part of the brilliance of artistic experience and of creating is the process of creating something that means something to you, but might mean something completely different to somebody else. So there's a degree to which, like, obviously, if you're trying to write something with intent, you know, you're trying to write a song that cheers people up and you play it and they're like, that is the most miserable thing I've ever heard. You know, you might want to reevaluate some of what you're doing, but a lot of what's really fun about creating art and about consuming art is... Like, you know, finding meaning in the gaps between artistic intent and audience, you know, reception. So if someone doesn't hear exactly what you wanted with your chord, it could also just be like, that's cool. You know, like they might it could just be that yeah. they're interpreting something different, but it still means something to them. It still provides value to them. And that's great if that's the case. Yeah, I completely agree. And there's, you know, it, it comes down to what you want your music to be for, right? Because it's entirely valid to just make music for you. Yeah. And in that case, you know, I, I do this all the time. Like I've mentioned this before, like when I make music, 99% of the time, it's music that I will never share with anyone. It's just me messing around in a DAW, making something that means something to me and expresses how I feel in that moment. Like if I show it to someone else, I have no idea if they'll be able to understand how I felt in that moment because I wasn't writing it for them. I was writing it for me. And that's entirely valid. But, you know, if, if you're trying to sort of tell a specific story, if you're trying to make something commercially viable, you know, it is worth thinking about. But it's also worth, like Noah said, giving yourself space to express yourself and your vision as well and letting people have their own experiences, because at the end of the day, they're going to have their own experiences. You can't stop that. Uh, you can't make them have exactly the experience you want because there are just too many factors outside of your control. You do the best making a thing that they can enjoy if they enjoy it and then give them a chance. Yep. Yeah, I think that's an answer to that. So uh, Felix Bolt asks, can music be made using absolutely 0% of the quote rules in music? Like by using no scales, no temperament, no pre-existing chords, and no reused structure. Oh, this- Or is this fundamentally and scientifically even quantifiable? This is the part of the episode where, you know, we talk about- The shags. The shags, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, if, if you look at the shags, there is a song structure there. And I think the short answer is that it depends how strictly you're defining the rules of music, right? Like that that's the boring answer. And it's not where I'm going to stop answering. But that is that is the real answer is it depends what you count. But like if you look at something like the shags, there is a song structure. There is a rhythm. There is yeah. all these ideas. And it's just it's a question of you probably can't by accident, right? Yeah. Like, you can't do stuff that would come across as music without incorporating some of your own experiences into it unless you're very like if you look at something like Captain Beefheart, right? Yeah, like that's that's what comes. That's a mind. much more like really trying to do weird stuff or or Nat Coleman. Exactly. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. And so you get these 
these works that are very specifically trying to break the rules. But I would still argue that actively trying to break the rules is a method of engaging with the rules. Just to be clear and give the ghost notes disclaimer that I do not need to give at this point, there are no rules. Rules are made up, do whatever you want. But using rules in quotes to mean like conventions that we are learned to expect, it's very hard to avoid those by accident. And if you do it intentionally, you are still intentionally doing it and reacting to them and engaging with them. But I also think that the second part of this question about whether or not it's quantifiable, that's a thing that I don't really have a good answer to either. Like, I, I kind of feel like it's not. Yeah. But I don't know where you're at. Yeah, I think the act of quantifying something like that, the way you would quantify would be by placing rules and structures on yeah. it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, it's an interesting thought experiment. It's one of those things like you get to like something like white noise and like white noise, I would argue, follows basically none of the rules of music, although it does have like a consistent granular division of time. It does that at a much smaller pace than you can really feel as rhythm. And it, it doesn't have anything that I would recognize as particularly musical. But, you know, it's at that point, because it has nothing that I would recognize as particularly musical... I also wouldn't recognize it as music. Yeah. And that's sort of the problem when you get far enough away from what this quote unquote rules of music say music should sound like is that those are the assumptions a lot of people make about what music should sound like. And so if your stuff doesn't sound like that, it doesn't sound like music to a lot of people. It's a good ghost notes question because it's a very like abstract concept. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to really have an answer one way or another because it is very much dependent on your definition of rules and, yeah. you know, your cultural experience and all of these things. Absolutely. Let's do one more. Let's do one more for the people. Give the people what they want. <laughs> all right, let's do like a weirdly technical question because we haven't done any of those yet. Yeah, I'm not going to have much to say on those ones, but... Well, we'll see. Penta L O Maoismo asks, are distorted power chords more major than one. minor? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of other uh, parts to this question, but that, that's sort of the central thing. So just to quickly explain what's going on here, what happens, uh, intervals are frequency ratios, more or less. That's the short version of that. When you run multiple different notes through a distortion effect, you get uh, through some blah, 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 nonlinearity, whatever, uh, you get this effect called intermodulation, which adds in extra frequencies that are basically the sum and the difference of the two frequencies that you put in. And then you sort of get higher order versions of that. So if you put through like a perfect fifth power chord, which is a two to three ratio, one of the things you get is the one, which is an octave below your root, which is a large part of why distorted power chords sound so good and sound so powerful and deep and resonant is because you're effectively playing their own bass line. The other note you get is two plus three, which is five, which is the major third. And so... The idea is that it might wind up sounding more major. I don't think that's how they come across. Yeah. Partly because like, you know, you have the intermodulation effect, but like that isn't necessarily full volume, first of all. Uh, and by the time it gets loud enough that that major third is as loud as the other two notes, you've also added so many other frequencies that aren't that in sort of higher order versions of that intermodulation process that it starts to just sound like noise. And that third isn't really discernible. But I also just think that like they tend to be used a lot in styles that tend towards minor sounds, like metal. I, I mean, I think these questions are interesting, but for me, what yeah. they kind of bring up is why 
does it matter? And it's totally yeah. fair and valid just to like have it as a little thought experiment. Like this is not yeah. to discount that. But functionally, you know, when you're doing music theory, when you're looking at stuff yeah. as major or minor or something like that, like there is a end that you're trying to accomplish there. There is some kind of, you know, information you're trying to gather. So I don't really think most of the time that really matters. Yeah. Also, part of the fun of music theory is talking about weird esoteric things. Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's an interesting question, which is why I wanted to include it. But I completely agree with you that sort of when I look at that, like, is this major or minor? My question is like, well, would you use it in place of a major chord? If you were writing a song and you had like a C major triad in it, would you replace that with a distorted C power chord? Probably not, because it fulfills a very different functional role. And so in the same way that even when we look at major chords, like there's a huge difference between the sound of like a major triad, a major seventh and a major sixth. And so sort of even in that space, the question is more like, what is this chord for? And what specific effect do I want to get out of using it? Because, you know, major and minor are not like physical things, right? We can define them as frequency ratios and we do, but they're useful labels for sounds much more than they are the sounds themselves. And so the question is, is this a useful label to attach much more so than, you know, can we do some fancy acoustic math that makes this look correct on paper? Because... Again, it's a question of like, is this how you would use it? Yeah. It's a good question. I, I enjoyed thinking about this one. Yeah. I wasn't sure if we were going to get it in here, but I like I did like I liked it. It was a great like thought experiment. Yeah, I feel similar. I feel like my answer kind of comes off like it's condescending on it. Yeah. These sorts of things. It is fun to have these musical thought experiments. Yeah, it's it's a fun thought experiment. It's an interesting question to sort of think through. But where it ends up for me is just like. If you wouldn't use it in place of a major chord, then it's probably not a major chord. Yeah. It's not like the useful name to give it for what it's doing. So again, you look at like a major seventh or a major sixth, you might use those in place of a major triad, depending on the piece. So they fill similar roles. But like if you're just playing like a nice clean jazz uh, piece and you come up on C major, which in this example is a triad in a jazz song for some reason, (laughs) But, you know, roll with it. But you come up on this C major and you just turn on your distortion real loud and play a C power chord. Everyone's going to look at you weird. Punk rock, baby. They're going to be like, what? Why did why did you do that? (laughs) And so I I think that in terms of acoustics, the argument can be made in terms of function. I don't think it's a useful analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to say before we say goodbye, this has been crazy to me that it's been two years but thank you all for your support thank you all for your questions and thanks for letting ghost notes continue to happen like i really enjoy that i just get to have this dumb little show where Corey and i just (laughs) talk about random music stuff i feel really lucky to have this show we were talking earlier about how you know on youtube we have to really think about like you know is are people gonna click this is this whatever but like Especially you know, this is through Nebula, they produce it and like people listen to it or they don't. And it's just it's really nice to just have this space to just have fun conversations. Yeah. And then hopefully some people get something out of listening to it and I get feedback on it regularly. So I assume they do. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's been wonderful. And I'm really, really looking forward to another two years. And then that's it. That's leaving forever. <laughs> Hard deadline. <laughs> This is something that I saw Mike Rugnetta at the end of his last video said, and I want to give 
full permission to do this too. If you want to have these sorts of conversations with your friends, feel free to like, A, you can bring up the podcast. You can also just steal any ideas that I said on this podcast and pretend they're yours. Same. Feel free to present these as your observations or, you know, say, you know, if you want to, you know, appeal to authority, be like, oh, 12 Tone said this and 12 Tone is a musical genius. (laughs) You have to phrase it exactly like that. Otherwise, I rescind my permission. (laughs) Yeah, no, feel free to just like take this stuff and talk about it, either tied to the podcast and the discussion we had and tied to our names or not. You know, they're just they're fun things to talk about. And you'll you'll have your own thoughts as well that you can sort of take and spin off. And exactly. Yeah. Just have these conversations. They're very fun conversations. Yeah. Find people in your life that you can have them with. And they really fundamentally like do change the experience of listening to music. Yeah. And also the experience of listening to Noah. In my experience. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know where to find us. Yeah. HTTP colon slash slash www dot. No, okay, I'm done. Bye. (laughs) Bye.